Good morning and welcome everybody one more time to Encounter Church. Um, we're in a series right now called Unstoppable, as we just saw, that, that the church is God's unstoppable movement of force of his creation to bring heaven down to earth, to make lost people found, to make the dead rise, to bring light to the darkness. And we, uh, one of the things that we did is kicking off this series on the book of, the, uh, book of Acts in the Bible is to say we're going to end this series together on February 18, and we're going to have this, this tub of water, and we're going to do baptisms together. It's going to be right down in front, maybe take a couple of these rows out, and we're going to celebrate. Now, at the time, I don't really have any idea how this is going to work or if anybody would, would, would even be interested. But we said this is, I mean, it's a series on Acts, unstoppable, like we're going to go for this. I am thrilled now to say that we've got baptisms confirmed on February 18 at both morning worship experiences. This is awesome. If God is like tugging at your heart right now and saying like, I think that might be the next step in my faith journey, we would love to explore that with you. Encounterchurch.org slash baptism. And you can share your story there. We can get in touch. We can, uh, we can go forward. Um, okay, so the series Unstoppable, as we're taking a look at God's unstoppable uh, force called the church throughout the book of Acts, one of the things that the book of Acts is known for is the use of miracles like all over the place. And it's one of those things in the book of, in, in the book of Acts that you, like, you, you have a hard time kind of like getting away from it. And it depends how you count a little bit, but I think that there's about, there's 14 miracles. I'm talking about like healing type of miracles in the book of Acts. Uh, 14 healing miracles in 12 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So if you're just reading this thing through, like I said, you're gonna come across a lot of miracles. And if you're in your, in your faith life, if you're following, following after Jesus, there's a good chance that at some point you're going to get on your knees before God and you're going to ask him for a miracle. You're going to ask him for healing for a loved one. You're going to ask him to put maybe a relationship back together. There's a good chance in your faith life, if you follow Jesus long enough, that you're going to ask him for a miracle. And so the assumption this morning, and maybe the wisdom this morning is to say, that if you're going to get on your knees one day and you're going to ask God to temporarily suspend the order of creation, the laws of nature and the laws of physics and science, if you're going to ask the maker of those things to suspend them on your behalf, like we should probably have the humility to also read into his word to see when and how and, and what he does with miracles, right? So we're going to take a look at, at, at these miracle stories, and instead of looking at all 14 of them, what we're going to do is take a look at the first one, because a lot of commentators say that if you could understand just this first miracle in the book of Acts, that it'll unlock the keys to understanding all of the rest of them, and in fact, all the miracles in Jesus' ministry as well. Two things that the miracles point us towards. So like, if you don't pay attention to anything else after this, what we know when we take a look at the, at the, at the miracle in Acts chapter 3, and in all of them, is number one, it shows us what God thinks and what God feels about suffering in the world today. And the second one, it shows us what he is planning on doing about it. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 3. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it on. See what I did there? Yeah. 
Yeah, I figured, I figured you out. All right, there's also Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you and then on the, uh, the words are gonna be on the screen behind me. Okay, Acts chapter three starts off this way. It says that one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And, and this is gonna get exciting and this is gonna, right, because it's miracles and there's like, there's amazing stuff on the way. But I don't want us to gloss over like this ordinary piece, all right, about about them just going to the temple and praying. Now keep in mind at this point, Judaism and Christianity were not separate, were not distinct. That these guys were Jewish people that believed that the Messiah came, Jesus died, and then came back to life again. And so they lived that faith out just as naturally as all the other Jewish people by going to the temple and praying. If Judaism and Christianity are a Venn diagram that is just a circle, at this point. There's not a distinction between the two. So they're just living out their faith. Now, what blows my mind in this passage is that the previous chapter, I preached on a couple weeks ago, and we heard, we heard in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 2, that 3,000 people were just added to their numbers, right? That is extraordinary growth. Peter stands up, preaches a sermon, and leaves then with 3,000 more people added to their hundred or so. And I just want that to like point that out to everybody here because now these guys are leading this mega church movement of people in Jerusalem, yet they're still going to the temple in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day to go pray. Now, I think, that's, I think that's significant. I think that's important for us to realize because sometimes, sometimes we measure our own spiritual growth in, in like, in like these, these, these bursts of intensity. And what I think that this points out, even before we get into all of the miraculous, amazing stuff, what this points out is that spiritual growth, sustained, lasting spiritual growth, isn't necessarily just measured in bursts of intensity, but sustained Spiritual growth is actually measured in this long, slow obedience in the same direction. Okay, I think that's important. Thank you, Eugene Peterson, for, for sharing that with me. That's not Dirk's original thought. But what I'm, what I'm just saying is that we're getting into miracles and we're getting into this awesome stuff happening, all right? And I love it. And we're gonna get into this thing and it's gonna be sweet. But what I'm also saying is, is what's in this passage is that Peter and John, even though this amazing stuff is happening, they're still going to church. And what I'm saying is like in the passage that we're taking a look at, Peter and John are, are, are about to do this miracle, but they're still not neglecting this fellowship with the other believers coming together. It's not the most exciting thing that they're going on. It's not the, the most engaging, but yet they're still in this rhythm because true sustained spiritual growth it's the same, not in bursts of intensity, but a long, slow obedience in the same direction. Now for the fun stuff, all right? Verse two, they get to the temple. One more quick side point, is that three in the afternoon? Because that is the moment, that is the hour that Jesus cried out his last breath, it is finished. And what better way, what better way to honor that moment than by praying? Anyway, totally beside the point. Verse two, um, now a man, <clears throat> they get to the temple, and there was a man who was lame from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. That's the name of the gate, is Beautiful. It was actually called the, the Nikonar Gate, except for 
man, it was just so beautiful that they just called it the beautiful gate. What made it beautiful is made of Corinthian bronze. Um, uh, Josephus was a historian at the time, and he said there were other gates overlaid with more, more valuable metals, gold and silver. But what made this gate so impressive was the fine craftsmanship and, uh, and sculpture around it. And so he said, if there was a dollar value assigned to it, this is the most valuable gate there is. Which I think is just kind of like this, this cool point, especially because you've got these guys now where he was put, this beggar, every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Like the juxtaposition of this incredibly well-known famous gate and this poor beggar lame from birth that they carried and put him in front of it. Like the two things are just in stark contrast as you imagine the scene. Verse 3. When this guy, when he saw Peter and John, pay attention to the wording of the phrase. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Now, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Okay, so he is asking them for money. And then Peter has to say, look at us. And then he looks, right? This is the routine that he's into. He's just, everybody that passes by, spare some change, please give me, you got some extra money, please help somebody out. Like, it's just this mechanical thing that rolls off that he's not even, he's not paying attention to anybody that goes by. So when Peter says, hey, 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 attention, like, like, look, look at us. Then he turns and he pays attention. Now he's expecting to get something. Oh, is he going to get something? Verse six. Then Peter said, he goes, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He says, walk. Now this is Peter. Peter's a little nuts. Like we learned that a couple weeks ago, right? This is Peter throughout the Bible. Peter is the guy who's always first to speak. Peter is the guy who's always first to act, whether it's good or bad. That's Peter. He's the guy that's going to get out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking on the water and give it a shot himself. Like Peter's the guy that like, nobody knows what else to do when they're speaking in tongues. So Peter's the guy who gets up there and, and, and preaches. When things turn south and Jesus is arrested and crucified, Peter's the guy who denies, I don't know Jesus. I'm not a follower of Jesus. What, what, what are you even talking about? Th that, that's Peter. All right. Ready, fire. Oh, aim right? This is Peter. Now he says, in the name of Jesus, walk. Could you imagine being John, right? Like, could you imagine coming along with me and we're walking through the mall and I see somebody in a wheelchair and I say, in the name of Jesus, walk. And you're like, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> like, I can't even believe that's John. But that's also the guy in the chair because he doesn't budge. Notice in the next line, he doesn't just get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, verse 7, taking him by the hand, because he's not moving, Peter now, he helped him up. Oh, and instantly, the man's two words here, feet and ankles became strong. Well, we assume we... we we almost know Luke wrote the story of Acts. Luke also wrote a gospel called 
Luke, called the Gospel According to Luke, the Jesus story according to Luke. And Luke was a medical physician, we understand. So, so he was like wrapped up in miracles. Like he wanted to know like how the miracles work in you. And he included more of them than, than anyone else. And so I know there's a lot of medical professionals in our community. And so I just, I think this is an awesome like point to say the, the specific words that Luke uses to describe feet and ankles aren't used in any other places in the Bible. They're so specific. It's not just foot. The Greek word that he used when he wrote this is actually for foot. He, he, was, he was using a word that discriminated these different parts of the heel. He was that specific. And when he says ankles, He's not just like, yeah, the bottom part of your leg. He's talking about a specific ankle bone that runs through. Like, like Luke, Dr. Luke here in the passage, the physician, the medical professional, is describing this like process whereby God is miraculously like bringing these joints into socket for the first time in this man's life. Like all of a sudden, this happens. These things like snap into place or whatever. And the man can walk, all right? And so he realizes what has just happened in his body and how Luke is like describing in medical terms what has happened in his body. And so the man, what does he do? What do he, verse eight, he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They saw what happened and they praised God. God because of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to lay these, this miracle thing out in terms of this miracle, but also all miracles in the book of Acts, all miracles in Jesus' ministry, and I think too, all miracles today. Because there's a directional component to it that I think is the easiest way to get our minds around it. So I'm going I'm to ask for some slight audience participation as we do this to help us remember it, right? There's educators among us know that you get your body into it a little bit more, you might remember a little bit more of it. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna say the miracles, they always point in four different directions. The first direction that they point is, sorry, upward. So I'm gonna need everybody, put your hand upward, upward, awesome, awesome. Watching online, your webcam is on, I can see you up. I'm just, I'm just messing, that was super creepy. All right, you can put them down. Upward though, that's the point, that's the point, upward. The miracles point upward to God's authentication of who Jesus is, right? The miracles aren't the point, but the miracles are pointing to Jesus. We got a sign in our upper lobby that says, keep Jesus at the center. Maybe you saw when you came in. The point is Jesus. The point is him pointing towards him. The miracles are like God's way of stamping his approval on the message. The miracle are God's way of like, like signing off on the work of Jesus to say, no, 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 this is true. This is real. This is trustworthy. The miracle is God's way of saying, listen to Jesus. If you've got two contradictory messages, you take the one, right, with a, the miracle attached to it. So we, we, don't, we don't trust our faith in miracles. No, we, we trust Jesus. This one uh, uh, apologist wrote about like miracles and about our faith. He goes, no, no, God didn't give us a watertight argument for the faith. God gave us a watertight person 
Everything hinges on Jesus at hashtag Jesus at the center. Uh, next one, after upwards, God's authentication is forward. Let's, hear you. Let's do it now. Forward, nice, nice. Forward to future restoration. It points forward towards the pieces coming back together again. No, Jesus, to, to prove he was who he says he was, he could have done all kinds of things, right? If Jesus just wanted to prove to his followers, hey, I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm deity walking around here on earth, he could have just called everybody around and said, guys, check this out, and just like wrote his name in the sky with clouds. Like he could do that. If the point was just for Jesus to do something powerful, incredible, to prove to who he was, he could have just had the Lions go to the Super Bowl, right? And we'd all be like, that's amazing. You must be God, because he's the only one that could make that happen. But listen, that's not going to happen. I'm sorry. Because the miracles, the miracles point to a redemptive act, the miracles point towards God putting things together again. Throughout Jesus' entire ministry, he didn't do those, wow, just amazing things. What he did is, is he restored what was broken in creation. He took people that couldn't see and he said, no, no, in the creation, you, you should be able to see. And so he restored sight to the blind. He restored hearing to the deaf. He restored mobility to the paralyzed. He restored people into their respective communities because that's what his ministry is about. It points forward. You know, when the temple leaders, when they see this guy that they knew because somebody went to his house, pulled him out of, out of bed and carried him, it says they carried him into the temple and, and put him probably early before anybody else was around at the best spot. Somebody cared about him. Somebody knew him. And now in the temple, when he's dancing and he's jumping around, they pay attention to this and, and their minds go to a place. Their minds go to that, to that redemption act, that time when everything is now put back together again. And Isaiah called it. Now these are people that are going to the temple to pray. They're going to church in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. Like these are diehard people, right? So they knew their Bibles. They knew Isaiah 35 verse 6 when it says that when the Messiah comes, the people will, will the lame will leap like a deer and the mute and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Right? They're putting, like that's what it's, it is when, when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom comes. When this ultimate act is everything is put back together, that's what life is lived before the face of God is like. Isaiah continues, and he says, in that time, the wolf will, lie, will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lamb and the young and the yearling together, and a little child will leave them. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. And the, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. These are people who lived in perpetual exile, in suffering, in pain, in loss. And the hope of the promised fulfillment, again from Isaiah, was that they will bring back your sons in their arms and will carry your daughters back 
on their hips. Like the friends, that hope of that restoration, of everything that was lost is now back, is now gained. And when they see just one man who was lame now dance, they saw that on a, as a down payment on what's to come. They saw him and they didn't think it's just one man who's now dancing. What they see is they see in the face of Jesus, lame men dancing. What they see is that the hope of Jesus is now blind women seeing. They see, they see all that is broken and all that is hurt and all that is lost before the face of God restored again. The miracle points forward someday to that future restoration. Joni Erickson Tata was in 1967, she's in a a diving accident where she lost complete mobility from from the neck down. And through this long and arduous task of, of physical therapy and, and trying to put life back together again, she came to the place where she's, where she's sharing her memoirs of what she, what she learned along that journey and the faith that God brought her to. And she said, that's my hope. And in fact, that's the Christian hope that though God hasn't given me a miracle on this side of heaven yet, is that one day he will restore everything that was lost. And my hope, she says, she writes in her memoirs, is that one day, one day I will stand before God on resurrected legs and then I'll kneel down on glorified knees before my God my resurrected king and God of healing, and then I'll rise and I will dance with all my might before him. This is the Christian hope of resurrection, of restoration. And the miracle is one small way of pointing towards that moment in history before the face of God. But it doesn't just point upward. And doesn't just point forward towards that future restoration. Come on now, it points inward. It points inward inside of us. It points inward to the soul's need of salvation. Now what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that everything bad in this world is because somebody sinned. That question was cleared up when they brought somebody before Jesus and said, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. That's not what this is about. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that everything, everything that's wrong in this world is because of sin that went wrong. You see, one of the things that I love about Christianity is its honesty, is to be able to look in the face of, of grief in a world that is broken and messed up and say, honestly, yes, it is messed up. That is not the way, this is not the way that God has intended it to be. It's supposed to be different than this. It is supposed to be better than this. So every time we see something broken, every time we see something not not functioning as it should, we can point at that and say, it's because of sin existing in this world. And it's because of that we need the salvation that Jesus offers, the restoration that Jesus offers. You want to know something? You want to know is that the Christian The Christian man or woman looks at all of the messed up stuff in the world and saying, this is not natural. This is not how it's supposed to be. Because the way that God made creation, 
There was no loss. There was no grief. There was no suffering. There was no unemployment. There was no backroom deals. There was no abortion. There was no, there was no death at all, ever, until sin was introduced into the world. And then even creation itself got messed up, askew, ajar, and it spiraled from there. And so now, so now we see a miracle happen. And just as it does, it points inside of us and it says, there's something wrong with this world that needs to be fixed. And this is a small sampling of it. One day it'll be fixed entirely. But what's broken isn't just out there somewhere, it's inside of each one of us. Is that in some way we all contribute to that and we have to own that. The thing is in the story, he put out his hand and he wanted silver or gold, he wanted money because he thought money, money was gonna be enough. Maybe it was just paying for, for something that he needed. He thought this, this is good enough. But we know better because we have money and it's not good enough, is it? We have more money than he could have ever dreamed of having. And it, and it isn't enough to fulfill us. It isn't enough to make us happy. And at the same time, he might look back and say, oh, but if I knew they could offer me healing, the ability to walk, if I could walk again, that would make me happy. Except for all of us too, most of us too, we can walk. I can walk. You can walk, many of you. So we know that, that, that walking isn't the thing that, that's going to make us happy, make us fulfilled. This is like the, this is going to be a potentially overly dramatic statement for memory's sake, but I, I'm going to stand behind it for now. But I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there that physical healing without spiritual healing in the end is worthless. I think the biggest miracle that Jesus did, that, that, that the disciples did in the name of Jesus in this story, it wasn't, it wasn't a handout, it wasn't a financial gift. The biggest miracle wasn't even the ability to walk. The biggest miracle in this man's life didn't even come in Acts chapter three. It came in Acts chapter four when that man became a disciple of Jesus and his eternity was changed. More than we need a physical healing, more than we need financial stability, more than we need a great relationship in our life, more than all of that, we need our soul's restoration reconciled to Jesus Christ because that, that will make the difference. Upward, forward, inward, in the hardest one, I don't know why I end on this one, downward. Downward in the direction that we're supposed to go in our mission. This is tough, friends, because you know, every healing miracle in the book of Acts, and there's 14 of them, was met with the cost of the one performing the miracle. Every miracle in the book of Acts, all 14 of them, caused trouble for the person performing them. You know, I would look at somebody who would, who would go around and, and asking people who are paralyzed to stand up and they, and they do and they dance or, or restoring sight to the blind or hearing to the deaf. I would look at the people that are, that are going around doing those things and be like, you're amazing. You're awesome. You're a hero. I look at that person and go, you need an S on your chest, a cape on your back and your underwear on the outside of your pants. Like you are an amazing individual. You are a hero among us. But in the book of Every miracle only causes trouble for the person who, who, who caused it. And that's, 
Not at all unlike the ministry of Jesus itself. We sang a song earlier today, You Came. The other name of that song is Lazarus because it's sung from the perspective of Lazarus. Jesus, you came. And because you came, I am alive. I am alive, Jesus, because you came. And when Jesus went there in John chapter 11, he said, Lazarus, come out. And his sister said, no, 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 Jesus, he's been dead for a long time. He stinks. He's riding away. Don't, don't call him out. Don't have that stone rolled away. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, friends. And John interjects. John telling the story, just watching this. He goes, it was at that moment, it was at that moment that the Jews became began plotting against Jesus. It's almost like John is saying, and it was at that moment, it was at that moment that his life, his fate was sealed. John interjects and said, Lazarus came out, but at a cost to the one who performed that miracle. It's almost as if John is saying that the way that Jesus brought the dead man out of the grave was to put himself in it. We call that in the church, we call that substitution. And now we see it played out again and again and again in the book of Acts as the disciples caused these great miracles and these restorations and these healings. And it cost them every time in the chapters following this one. Peter and John are now, are now incarcerated. They're locked up. They're imprisoned. They restored his mobility at the cost of their freedom. Why would we expect anything different for us? You see, the miracle is, is today's, they're asking us, God is asking us to go downward in the direction that our ministry, our, our mission is going to take us. He's saying, he's saying, you can do, you can work a miracle, but it will cost you every time. Don't expect a pat on the back and a, and a hero's welcome. Expect it to cost your time. Expect it to cost your money. Expect it to cost every ounce of your influence until you have nothing left. That is the downward mission of God, the mission of Christ that he himself has exemplified. So right now, somebody's praying for a miracle and God is saying, we can do that, we can provide that, but it's gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you, church, to show up and to be that unstoppable movement of God that brings heaven down to earth. It's gonna cost you to bring light to a dark place. It's gonna cost us to make lost people found again. But that is what the church at our best is called and asked by God to become. A church, a movement that joyfully and not begrudgingly that joyfully sacrifices and moves in that downward direction to restore every need in our community. So that at our best, we should be a place, as we heard, that loves where we live. At our best, we should live out that calling so that whatever the need is in the community, we can say, we will help, we will provide that. You think it's a miracle, but at our cost, we can meet it. We should be that kind of community where if somebody comes in and says, I need help with my mortgage or they're gonna take my house, we'll say, we'll help. We should be that place that somebody comes in and says, I need my rent paid or they're gonna evict me and we'll say, we will help. They're gonna shut off my electricity, they're gonna shut off my water, they're gonna shut off my heat and we say, we will help. I'm addicted 
to pornography, I'm addicted to drugs or alcohol, substance abuse, and we will say, will help every time. I'm lonely and I don't have any meaningful relationships in my life. Friends, we're the church. We can help with this. I have doubts or questions about my faith and we'll say, we will help. God has laid this vision on my heart to do something incredible in this community. And as the unstoppable movement of God to bring heaven down to earth, we will help someone somewhere right now is on their knees praying to God for a miracle. And he is saying, I'll send you. Friends, if you need a miracle... Just if you need God to show up, if you're ready for a fresh start. We have prayer team people in the back, in the far corner of the building. People gathered around there. It's a beautiful sight. Ask. We want to help. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Let's pray to that miracle-working God. Jesus Christ, you are a miracle-working God. God, you, you perform these miracles not, not because it's something interested, not because, Lord, you just want this shallow sense of praise, but God, because you're telling us something about who you are. You're a God who puts things back together again when they're broken. And God, there's so much broken in this world and there's so much need of restoration. And God, we want to believe that the best way to do it is for you just to simply snap your fingers and to put it all right again. But, but in your infinite wisdom, and we don't know why you have chosen to work through fallible, broken, sinful, lying, hypocritical people like us. Spirit, we need your help to live that out because we, because right now, Jesus, we are not the church that you have asked us to be. But God, our weakness is made perfect in your strength. Rejuvenate our strength. As we come to your table, speak to us. Jesus, we come. And we need you to nourish our hungry souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen.